Welcome to Radio Beacon, the weekly podcast of Beacon Communications. I'm Dan Kittredge, editor of the Cranston Herald, joined as always by Jake Morocco, editor of the Johnson Sunrise. Good morning, Jake. Hey, what's going on, Dan? How you doing? Not too much. I'm doing all right. Uh, and forgive me, I, re- I say this every time. I say good morning when it's actually the afternoon that we're hey, recording. Nobody ever would have known. My, my sense of time <laughs> continues to be completely warped, as I imagine many people's are. Uh, so it's Friday, um, around 2.20. It's been uh, quite a week, as Rhode Islanders and residents of our communities in particular well know. Um, the, the, as everyone I imagine is familiar with at this point, the uh, scenes that unfolded in, in, uh, in Providence earlier this week, um, from Monday night into Tuesday, um, looting and violence and uh, um, uh, just a really kind of troubling scene. And then the next day, on Tuesday, the uh, anxiety that kind of swept the area as um, officials became concerned over the possibility of similar scenes playing out in locations like Garden City in Cranston and the Warwick Mall. Um, so we saw a pretty, uh, a pretty unprecedented and, and remarkable scene unfold as police and National Guard uh, personnel were were heavily present at uh, at those locations. Sakonasa Crossroad in Cranston was closed off. Barriers were put up. Businesses uh, boarded up uh, windows and closed early. Thankfully, the night uh, passed quietly. I know here we heard uh, in Warwick heard some helicopters uh, overnight. Other communities saw reports of that. Uh, as well, um, so just kind of a, it struck me that it, I, I wasn't in the Boston area. I was living in Massachusetts, but not in the Boston area at the time of the uh, the Boston Marathon bombing and its aftermath. And uh, it was it struck me as pretty similar, although to be kind of within the radius of it was uh, um, it was it was a very surreal experience. Stepping outside, a curfew was put in place for Cranston and for Warwick um, and many other communities. Um, Providence has a curfew that remains in effect. Uh, others, other communities have lifted theirs for the most part. And, um, I know, uh, so it, it was just quite a, quite a scene. I don't know. I don't know what your experience was with it, Jake, working remotely. I don't, I haven't seen you since. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's been, it's been interesting. You know, I've been, uh, hearing fireworks every night outside my window. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just been a real surreal scene. And I think, that it really felt, I think it really was grounded in reality once they set up the curfews and there were blockades essentially at Garden City and National Guard roaming around. And then you have, uh, you know, like the Warwick Mall, there's police officers outside. And it, it's just, you know, I, I was I was listening in on the governor's call earlier this week when she addressed uh, the situation. And she said it was unprecedented, which at first you think, okay, well, maybe not because there's, you know, there were race riots in the 60s and then it goes all the way back to, you know, the 19th century and beyond. But in her context, she was saying that it, you combine these riots or not, maybe not, I think riots is uh, excessive protests, sometimes riots, but mostly protests, peaceful protests. And then you combine it with a pandemic that is, you know, still not going away it's still here very much in full force. I mean, yes, Rhode Island seems to be going down the curve a little bit here, but you don't want anything to happen where it goes back up because of a large amount of people being together. And these two things converging at once, it's just such 
a remarkable moment in history that we're all living through. And it's just, it, you just kind of have to take a step back and look at, you know, how is this going to be reevaluated in 10, 20, 30 years? It's just an, an incredible, and not incredible in a good way, an incredible moment in history. Yeah, no, I, I, the, the word that keeps coming to mind to me is disorienting, which has kind of been the, my, my go-to throughout this health crisis and economic crisis that we're, we're living through. Just, uh, you know, and, and yeah, to, to, to think that, uh, you know, it, it's just this, this very, uh, to, to suddenly uh, have that, which has been such the forefront of everyone's uh, life and, and day-to-day existence for for weeks now, you know, that it's almost uh, an afterthought in this last week. Um, it, obviously, really important to note, as everyone knows, the, the backdrop to all of this that's unplayed, uh, played out locally is what's happening nationally in these, um, you know, widespread demonstrations and um, the issue of, of uh, violence and uh, often fatal against African-Americans uh, at the hands of police and others, um, most obviously the case of George Floyd in Minnesota, um, and others in recent, recent weeks and months. Um, and then it's an issue that, uh, has just come back in a way that, uh, I don't think the country has seen in decades. So, um, so locally it, uh, it continues to play out. Um, I know that, uh, Friday afternoon here as we're speaking, uh, a demonstration is set in Providence later this afternoon. Um, I know the scene there is is uh, uh, playing out similarly, I think, to how it, um, for some business owners, played out uh, here in, on Tuesday um, with, uh, you know, barricades putting, putting, being put up, uh, uh, windows being boarded. Um, my under the governor was pretty, it was pretty conspicuous to me when she, uh, she mentioned earlier this week in the calls after, um, Tuesday nights or Monday nights uh, uh, incidents that uh, using using phrasing that suggested this was part of a uh, the violence and the looting the rioting aspect of this was um, you know certainly not affiliated with the Black Lives Matter movement and the peaceful demonstrations that have been happening but uh, uh, is tied to some larger um, organized effort that's playing out in other cities across the country. Um, she used she used some pretty striking language, you know, that suggesting that there is a more singular person or, or I guess less person, but entity people um, and may, perhaps even funding behind this. I know I, I saw an AP story last night um, suggesting something very similar, that uh, there is there is a more national investigation ongoing into um, the likelihood, I guess, that mm-hmm. that uh, certain folks are. Mm-hmm. Uh, using this moment and these these uh, situations to organize these these looting efforts and, mm-hmm. and things like that. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how that investigation plays out and and what uh, what actors specifically uh, might be behind this kind of stuff. And we certainly hope that uh, you know here locally it it doesn't happen again. Um, to return, I guess, to the you know the other main issue facing, uh, facing all of us right now, the COVID-19 crisis. I did not get to, uh, see the governor's briefing today, but looking at the coverage, um, it seems the big takeaway was that she has extended the state of emergency order for Rhode Island through, 
next month, uh, right after July 4th. Um, and it's unclear at that, you know, we'll see at that point whether uh, um, it's extended further. I know, um, you know, the other aspect of these these demonstrations and gatherings and the, the state is in phase two now of its reopening plan. Um, a lot of virtually all segments of the economy have some sort of activity going again, indoor dining, uh, barbershops, fitness centers and gyms, um, you know, uh, locally in in Cranston, the senior center has reopened on a limited basis. The library will be reopening on a limited basis uh, soon. Similar things are happening elsewhere. State parks and beaches are open again. So I know that uh, the guidance from the state and health officials has been continuously that you know the numbers you don't you don't really see trends in the COVID nineteen data uh, reflected until a couple of weeks out. You know that fourteen day period or so. So, you know, the numbers lately have been very encouraging. Uh, you know, the number of deaths tragically continues to rise. That is, you know, viewed as more of a lagging indicator. Um, the numbers of hospitalizations and new cases and, uh, and people treated in the ICUs have remained remarkably steady or, or declined um, over the last, I don't know, a couple of weeks now. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, with these large demonstrations and events happening um, and more people out there doing business and going places and seeing family and friends and doing things they haven't been doing for a while, <clears throat> we'll be uh, watching very closely to see if um, within the next couple of weeks there's any more troubling signs in the data. Um, have you have you noticed things opening up, Jake, in your I know you've been working from home. Have you seen uh, a difference? And I certainly have seen more traffic on the roads. Um, it, it seems to be, you know, some days it you wouldn't know anything else was going on. I do. It's it's. It, I see more traffic. I see parking lots with more cars. I see people actually going inside of businesses. Uh, I know people are you know going back to salons uh, on this limited basis, even though this you know sanitation procedures are pretty strict and. But you know what? Some people don't want to cut their own hair or can't or, you know, they want to go get their mani-pedi, whatever it is. But it's it's nice to get a little bit normalcy back, even if you still have to go in with a mask and you still have to be socially distanced. At least you still get the benefit of getting to do some of what you used to do. So it, I do notice more traffic. That's for sure. You know, it's not like the roads are empty anymore. It's not like a month ago today where there really isn't anybody out there. There's people out there driving. So it's it is a, you know, a little bit refreshing to see that life is slowly trickling back to normal. I mean, that's still had a long way to go to get back to what it was before. And that won't be overnight. It's going to be gradual. But it is nice to see that, that there are people out there and getting back to you know what they used to do before. And it's changed. It'll be different for a while. But for now, it's, it's whatever you can do. Yeah. Elsewhere... Um I'll, I'll plug uh, in the Cranston Herald this week. There was a lot. There was a lot of news. It's been a busy week in the, on the city hall and political front. Um, the, the city council last week uh, approved a budget uh, for the coming fiscal year that starts July 1. Um, they kind of, uh, I think I mentioned this last week because it had happened already, um, that they did uh, with the school funding particularly, they uh, they have they have put the schools in a position where uh, they're really going to be reliant on the the assembly coming through with some aid. So we 
get full coverage of that. Um, uh, I guess elsewhere, I would say uh, this coming week, I, I have to be vague on this, but uh, I believe there will be some pretty sig- significant uh, political news in Cranston uh, in the next few days. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, it does concern the mayoral race. So uh, some keen observers probably have a sense of where that's going, but I'll, I'll just uh, for now leave it at that. Um, I know in the Warwick Beacon this week, uh, our publisher and editor, John Howell, uh, had coverage of the uh, uh, that city's budget, uh, of Warwick's budget um, discussions and review. Um, he had uh, a, a really interesting story, a good one of this, uh, that he's he's been following for a while, of a family in uh, the Oakland Beach section of the city whose house was destroyed um, in a fire a few years ago, and They've had quite a uh, a rough experience uh, uh, with a um, an issue getting there. Had had agreed with someone to have their house uh, fixed and rebuilt, um, and that did not work out, to put it generously. And uh, but someone else, some other contractor, has stepped forward to help them. So um, John had a nice uh, update on that. Um, I'll tease for next week. they're in keeping with the, the the demonstrations and and the whole issue of uh, of uh, equality and and police conduct and that's going on. Uh, last night, uh, members of the Edgewood community in Cranston held this uh, kind of unique vigil um, in keeping with social distancing and um, wanting to keep folks safe. Uh, it kind of germinated out of. Uh, um, some, some folks that live over in Edgewood, they began uh, reaching out to their neighbors about the possibility of doing this organized uh, thing where, where, folks, where folks, or folks, folks would come to their porch at a set time and hold candles in solidarity and kind of an expression of, of community and support for this movement. Um, and it was pretty, uh, it was quite a scene. My, my girlfriend and I went down and drove through Edgewood, spoke with several people, um, some emotional uh, really, folks, um, given everything that's been going on, so I'll have some coverage of that demonstration that was uh, and that that kind of community effort, which was which was pretty cool to see. Um, any any major news on the Johnston front this week, Jake? Uh well, I had a story in there. I we did the podcast last week with uh, Vice President Council Vice President Joe Palestina Jr. Thank him again for uh, coming on. It was a great great chat. I did a story follow up following up on that. The other big stories, I spoke with uh, Linda Grieco and Linda Harnois. They are uh, one of them from Johnson, Linda Grieco, and they made a uh, communicator mask, and it's a mask that is see-through to the mouth, so it's easy to actually you know, kind of read people's lips and see what they're saying, which they said is very important for you know, teaching and for little kids especially to you know, be able to establish that connection. So I did a story on that. That was really a really interesting conversation. So, uh, so definitely check that out. But really, it's you know, we're we're moving forward now. We have a council meeting coming up on Monday, checking out the agenda, seeing what's what's going on in town. Trying to you know, they they did that last month for the first time in May. So hopefully, it's there's a little uh, you know fewer other uh, mishaps to work out in terms of you know, the Zoom call. But uh, school committee's coming up, and then got some uh, top ten coverage as we get into uh, graduation season or whatever they can salvage of graduation season uh, across our cities and towns. Yeah. Yeah, I should say, uh, <coughs> excuse me, in Cranston this week, they uh, were recording uh, the students receiving their diplomas for this virtual virtual ceremonies that they'll be dropping for uh, for East and West and the, the charter school. I know Warwick has been doing similar um, stuff, getting theirs together. So 
keep uh, keep your eyes open uh, in print in our publications uh, this next couple of weeks and online as well, where we'll be doing um, special graduation sections for each school. Um, it's a really cool concept. I think it's going to come out very well. Um, so uh, we'd urge our listeners and readers to keep an eye out for those and that coverage. I certainly our congratulations to the class of 2020, all the families and students and educators who, uh, you know, this is a really special time of year for people in um, the school community. And uh, I know this year is, is just so different and disrupted, but uh, um, it has been really heartening to see and special to see how people have responded to uh, make it as as much of a, a, a special and memorable experience for the students as is possible given all of this so um with that segue to our guest today uh john howell and i uh shortly ago hosted former warwick police chief colonel stephen mccartney he uh he retired a couple of years ago um but he he was generous with his time and came to speak with us and reflect uh on the current situation um to offer his perspectives on on law enforcement and, you know, how departments are, and officers are, you know, best served in responding to this crisis. And, uh, you know, we, we touched on issues from the law enforcement officer's bill of rights, which there's been calls to reform. We spoke about his experience uh, as a member of the Providence Police Department and the Warwick Police Department, um, his views on what's happening nationally. So um, we had a, a pretty extensive discussion. So We'll go now to John and, and my discussion with Colonel McCartney, and then Jake and I will return for a quick wrap up. I've always said, when you're, you know, even being a police chief, there but the grace of God every day. You know, you hope and pray that you, you know, particularly deadly force incidents. And, uh, you know, when they, when they involve people of color, it, it's, there's always the potential. When you add in all the other issues that seem to be slowly added into the burner, income inequality, uh, you know, it, it simmers and simmers and simmers, and all of a sudden this thing has just exploded. And, you know, I, I think I, the, the sad part of it from my perspective, and I have to admit I come from one perspective here, is that I get it. I mean, what happened here was God awful. I mean, it's your worst nightmare. Mm -hmm. And I have no idea what these four cops were thinking about. I mean, every one of them looked bad, okay? And I don't know how many times before I left, uh, you know, I, I would constantly go down and sit down and talk to the roll calls and say, hey, look, gang, uh, you young officers here, your lives are much different than my life was when I was your age back in the 70s when I first started in Providence. I said, you have to understand everything you do is under a microscope, a camera. Okay, so if you think you're getting away with something, you're not. Okay, and you, you have to be careful about your actions, your words, uh, your deeds, everything you do, even your body language about how you deal with people today, particularly if you're dealing with a person of color. You gotta work a lot harder now 
dealing with a person of color uh, than you may in a normal uh, situation. I mean, it didn't manifest. I mean, one thing I noticed when I was here in Warwick, when I first came, when I was started going to neighborhood meetings here, Connecticut, you know, Norwood, all the usual meetings that you went to, is they were very well organized. Uh, I was very impressed with the organizations of these meetings. People really had, you know, they really had a plan. They knew what they were doing. Uh, and you would look out at the crowd that was mostly white, but there were also people of color. And I'm saying this is interesting because these people are, they're all together. And uh, they were very demanding and you had to make sure that you could come up with the answers and make sure that you took notes because you knew the follow-up was probably going to come and you got you to produce, you know, as to what their complaints are and what, what's being done on the complaints. I'll, I'll take it in reverse now. When I was in Providence, I used to, went to a lot of meetings over 25 years, 25 and a half years that I was in Providence. Uh, particularly in the 80s and the 90s. I mean, in the 80s, I ran a, uh, actually, we were kind of a combination, but for four or five years, I ran a, uh, a high crime unit that we would go into the toughest areas where we were having all the problems. And we were working on the broken windows theory of go after the little things and you'll find the big things, the big problems. And at that time, that was a predominant prevailing theory in law enforcement, particularly back in, oh, I gotta say maybe 1985. Uh, New York City was using it. Uh, Ed, uh, that's where uh, Bill Bratton made his name, was using uh, broken windows, uh, that whole theory of policing. And uh, he actually started by going after the squeegee men that used to all of a sudden come up and clean somebody's out and then demand money. It was, it was almost an extortion. Well, he worked on all the little things, and slowly but surely, that's how the crime rate was brought down, and of course, he built his name on that. And uh, the, the problem with that was that oh, after being successful with that particular concept of policing, uh, the minorities were claiming that, yeah, but you're going after us, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. in a disparate fashion. And slowly but surely, I, I, by this time I was, because I was in the 90s, I was in the dicks, so I didn't have to deal with it. I was dealing with the, the murders, uh, the murders and the shootings. And, uh, but that had to take a different form. I mean, broken windows kind of went out the door, but we did it. But we used to follow up with people. I used to follow up with the councilman that had the effective area. Uh, he would set up a meeting and we sit down and, and we were, it was all people of color. Not, not too many white people. Occasionally we would go to, but for the most part we were dealing with minorities. And you know, they wanted quality of life too, but, uh, and, they were happy with what we were doing because we were outreaching at the same time, believe it or not. I mean, we were making a lot of arrests, but like I said, I used to tell the guys, we gotta follow up with these guys that we arrest 
because most of the time we were bringing them in, uh, doing the paperwork, and releasing them to a peer, unless do, we... Do you think in this situation, however, the, the method of you know, deploying the knee to, to his neck, is this a oh, standard you know what? Means you know what, on Facebook, uh, there was Lieutenant Darren Bissonette, who is an instructor. In fact, Darren has some very impressive set of credentials. I remember he used to teach up at the academy when I was the chairman of the post. And I used to have to go up to the academy all the time. Uh, and uh, he writes a very uh, cogent, incisive narrative in Facebook today and talking about how disgusted he was with these four Indianapolis policemen because nowhere in his knowledge with all his background and certifications that he has were we ever taught uh, and he said I know of no department in the country that would teach some, you know, a technique of leaning on somebody's neck, uh, you know, full force. So he was really upset about it. And I was sitting there saying, what are these guys doing? I, I mean, it, it was just, and the other three looked like a bunch of dopes. You know, they were, you know, like they were afraid because it sounds like this guy, Chauvin, was like the senior guy and probably a, the dominant personality of the four and everybody followed whatever, whatever he told them to do. Uh, but he also, it seems like with his past history, he was pretty heavy handed too. So, uh, but these guys did nothing to help the situation. So it's, I mean, it, it's your worst nightmare, I think, if you're a police chief, because these guys probably violated policy. So what have they got now? They've had mayhem in the city of Minneapolis and I understand that the city council wants to defund the police department and start a new police department with just social workers and people from the health field, the public health field. They will become the police officers because we can't trust the cops anymore. And to kind of pivot from that, I, training gets brought up a lot as in, a, in this discussion as Absolutely. an issue. Absolutely. And I wanted to Huge. include with that too, you mentioned broken windows. There's been a push kind of lately yeah. more toward community policing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What, 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 what's your experience in terms of that, in terms of whether there is this widespread issue with training and then also kind of the approach and how that's evolved over the years? Yeah, well, I mean, training is what drives the, you know, that drives everything because you're talking about tactics. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, when you start talking about broken windows, that's the concept, and that comes more at the operational strategic level because yeah. that's something that the chief or the commissioner, depending upon who you are and how big your department is, uh, is really going to dictate, this is the concept of what I want to do. And of course now he's expecting his underlings to figure out how we're going to set that concept that you're going to do, just like with community policing. Uh, I know that when uh, I, I saw, for example, in Providence after we finished up with our unit in the 90s, we had a community policing unit that had district stations all over the city of Providence. And they had, I think, two or three officers in each district. 
and it was their job to go to all the meetings, find out what the people wanted, get to know the people, follow up, and uh, Major Cornell Young was in charge of the unit. And uh, he, I th thought Cornell did a pretty good job. I mean, he, he went to the meetings, and, and I think from the perspective of a person of color, uh, if you're going to a meeting on Prairie Avenue or a meeting down in Washington Park, when a major walks in, and that major is a person of color, uh, I think that really gives the feeling the, of the constituents who are there, who are mostly people of color, makes them feel pretty good. And I think that uh, he, he lived in South Province, uh, so people got to know him. So, I mean, he probably never got away from the job because people were probably calling up all the time yeah. for Cornell. <laughs> used to tell me about it. I, it, it was, uh, but you know, uh, but he he would he, he did he did his job. And it was good. Uh, now it's my understanding, and I'm coming with this second hand, because by this time I was at Warwick. But when Dean Esselman took over as the chief of police, uh, he brought in a community policing concept, uh, but he tried to convert the entire department as a community policing department. Uh, I think that took a little while to, he, he broke the city down into uh, districts. I think he had seven districts and had seven lieutenants running their district. And he then combined that with what CompStat, because that CompStat is another big New York thing that they had where they would set everything up by statistics and what he would expect. And this was something that Bratton did with his district stations is, okay, District 1, uh, tell me, give me a briefing on your crime stats and tell me about what happened during the week. And, that, and then he would be questioned about everything that happened in his district. And, well, what about last month? Now, last month we had this go on here. What have you done about that problem? And he would be questioned about that. Then they moved through there. And then I think the only difference with a city the size of New York and a city the size of Providence, which is probably more like one district in the city of New York, is that the detectives are working in a district. And I, I think they only had a couple of specialized units that actually operated out of headquarters. So. Whereas he would just have the detective, the specialized units, assistant commenting about what was going on in the districts to the extent that they knew what was going on. Or when it came time to talking about violent crime, that's when they were on the spot. The detective commander was probably on the spot because he's responsible for the investigations. You know, where do we stand on this investigation? What's going on with this shooting? What happened with this murder? Know where we at type yeah. of thing. So, what's your read with how uh, you know Providence as well as state police uh, responded to the situation the other night and the way uh, you know Warwick, Cranston, and other municipalities are looking at this and saying, I don't think Warwick's ever had a curfew before, to my knowledge. Uh, certainly not of this yeah. nature. There've been I. 
I'm going to, I'm going to, I, I know for a fact, for example, the state police has what they call a fusion center. And the fusion center, their job 24 and 7 is to gather intelligence about what's going on all over the country. Is there something that we need to be aware of that's happening that could happen here in Rhode Island? Uh, at the same time, they're talking with the border states, Massachusetts, Connecticut, what's happening there, is there anything you know, that we need to be aware of? So they're on the phone constantly trying to gather intelligence and giving briefings. Uh, apparently, something came up that said that, you know, these, uh, be careful, uh, these peaceful demonstrations, uh, we have information that there are groups of people, some associated with the Antifa group, uh, and some are just plain outright revolutionaries. You could probably, uh, uh, my, my analogy to that, John, would go back to uh, the SDS mm -hmm. back in the 60s. Mm -hmm. I mean, these people think it's revolution, you know, their, their attitude. Having talked to a few of those people over the years, uh, they just don't believe that, the, you know, they're, they're constantly denigrating the capitalist system. It doesn't work. So, Nobody listens to us, so I guess the only way to succeed is violent overthrow. You know, that's their attitude. And I think that what happens when you have a situation like this, and what they do is they use social media to communicate. I mean, these groups are all over the country, and they communicate with each other through social media. And this is where the Fusion Center comes in, because they get information and they if they can get a hold of the sites where this stuff is going on, then they actually can intercept the information, which I'm guessing might have happened, or they might have gotten it from informants. That's possible. Well, the governor uh, in Manny both said yeah. that they were they knew this was going to happen. They yes. were yes. prepared for it. So, yes. um, you know, obviously they deployed personnel. They, they deployed people, I guess, unfortunately, uh, they didn't realize the size of that they were that this group was pretty sizable in numbers. So initially, mm -hmm. uh, the police were overwhelmed. You know, particularly when they went into the Promise Place Mall. Uh, when they did manage to redeploy the people and get enough people to reinforce the detail that they had, the police detail that they had over there and managed to get them out of there, and then of course now these people just start creating mayhem up and down downtown area, just, you know, breaking windows, setting fires. Uh, I think they made 65 arrests, I think, if the yeah, uh, yeah. number is correct. So, uh, you know, uh, now the next night, were you surprised that there were, you know, a curfew here in Warwick and Well, I, I, I well? it's my understanding that the information was that uh, they could possibly they they were targeting Natick Mall. Any malls could be a target, so I think that that was the uh, impetus to Garden City to and put a plan together for for Cranston. And wanting to not take any chances, the same thing with Warwick. I mean, I'm sure they coordinated uh, with the uh, right. Warwick Mall personnel, and, and uh, I know that uh, the Colonel in Cranston did the same thing down in Garden City. 
And fortunately, everything was quiet. Did you? Most part. Did you have any other analogous experience during your career toward toward that kind of thing? Did you? Oh, over the years, yeah. I mean, we've had you know, uh, we've we had small riots. Uh, the blizzard of '78. Mm -hmm. uh, it was literally. I mean, I I didn't get home for ten days. I literally slept on the floor, second floor. It was crazy. Yeah. I mean, and what happened? I know we shot and killed one guy that was breaking into uh, Harris Furs. Oh, yes. And at that time, they had a building over on uh, just behind Central High School. And then we had up and down Broad Street and uh, Elmwood Avenue, the businesses were all getting broken into because we were still, at that time, it, it, a week had gone by and the roads were still not cleared. Do you, do you think the pandemic had a role in, or has I, a role I, in I certainly don't think you can dismiss it because I think that everybody is under a lot of tension, you know, because of being cooped up and you know being restricted i mean look, look look at the demonstrations that you were having from groups of people that felt that uh you know governments were being too heavy-handed and too restrictive and they didn't believe that the problem was that serious that it needed those kinds of restrictions and there were demonstrations i mean i think there was one in michigan where there was a bunch of second amendment people out there i mean you got all these different kinds of fringe groups out there, uh, you know, on both sides of this thing, I mean, uh, that uh, can be pretty dangerous. I mean, these people actually had weapons out there and they were demonstrating at the yeah. state house. And I, I, guess, I guess it was legal for them to carry the firearms the way they did in the state of Michigan. I'm not familiar with their laws, but uh, I kept saying to myself, my God, look at these people. They're all, yeah. talk about intimidating. It's pretty yeah, pretty, far pretty scary. Yeah, and uh, so I, I, I never heard about what the law enforcement response to that was, but uh, that's that's pretty hairy too. Yeah. So, to uh, you know, these these a lot of these governors. I mean, Governor Raimondo was put under a fair amount of pressure here that mm -hmm. she was being a little too heavy-handed. Uh, but you know, to her credit, she stuck to her guns and. She was dealing with empirical evidence and following the, the advice of her health department people, but you got people out there that were, I think, literally were becoming unglued about this thing. And, you know, I don't want to be restricted anymore. I'm tired of this, you know, I can't go anywhere. What do you mean I can't go anywhere? I'm an American, I, you know. Why do I have to wear a mask? I don't want to wear a mask. I mean, I, I was, uh, I don't mind saying as a constituent, I was very disappointed in the work union, police union. Mm -hmm. uh, and to his credit, I did send Colonel Rathbun a text saying, congratulations, I'm glad to see you stepped up and put those guys in their place. Because that was, to me, if I, as a constituent, that was terrible to let the constituents know, oh, I'm not gonna enforce uh, the governor's thing, because first of all, uh, you know, any cop has discretion. 
Now, you don't have to go out there and lock everybody up because they're not wearing a face mask. First of all, it's called we talk to people. Okay, sir, will you please put on your face mask? Okay, do everything you can to avoid a problem. And, you know, what are the ones that you're going to take more serious than somebody walking down the street that wasn't wearing a face mask or something like that? You're being called to a place of business. The place of business is the complaint. They tell you that this gentleman is, we have asked this gentleman that he can't come in here. He's not wearing a face mask and we're not going to let him in. And he's causing a ruckus right now at the entrance. So you respond there. You try to talk to the guy and try to convince him, hey, look, these people are well within their rights to, you know, tell you this is the law and they're abiding by the law and you've got to wear a face mask, you know, let's, and try to talk it out with the guy. Yeah. But I, I, I just didn't understand why they had to come out with that and then saying, well, we're not going to arrest our constituents. Well, I would hope there wouldn't be that many constituents that would be in that situation to begin with that you'd have to arrest. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, that's probably the most egregious kind of situation I can think of is that you're trying to go into the stop and shop and you don't want to wear a mask. Okay, well, do you have something from a doctor that says you can't wear it? I mean, there's a lot of ways you can handle this thing without having to come up and saying, well, we're not going to do it. <laughs> so I was glad to see the colonel step it up and say, oh no, yes, you will enforce it, all right? I set policy. You do not set policy. This is not a labor issue. Mm -hmm. Okay? Mm -hmm. This has nothing to do with terms and conditions of your employment. So, I mean, I'm glad that the Colonel did what he did. I sent him a, a little text and said, congratulations, you stepped up and that's good. Because I said, that was embarrassing. So, good for you. And, I, you know, he issued a statement, too, that, which we ended up printing in the paper. And yeah. I you saw it. Yeah. Which I thought was very appropriate. Well, I, I, I would think that uh, I would... I can't imagine what response that would have gotten from the majority of the constituents. Yeah. I mean, all of a sudden that leaves you with a sense of, well, who's in charge? what are you going to do? Yeah. yeah, one, who's in charge? Two, uh, well, what's the matter? Is it every time that you guys don't like something, you're just not going to do it? Yeah. I, I mean, I was like, what? I mean, first of all, I was saying, you know what? God bless him. I worked with Peter Johnson and Eric Falkowski for a lot of years. We had our differences, differences of opinion, but we always handled it professionally. If we thought that we couldn't come to an agreement and we had to go ar arbitration on something or, you know, there was a disciplinary matter and we would let it go to a, a Bill of Rights, uh, but there was no, none of this. I can't imagine what either one of those guys were thinking. Because I, I was just very disappointed because during my 19 and a half years uh, when I was actively working that, you know, we had our differences of opinion, but we always managed to settle it professionally. And did those guys did a great job in making sure that that got across. The department has enough uh, members of color in it? Well, you know, that, that's... Taking a look at confidence yeah. as well as, you know... The state is all that's a fair question, John, because uh, I know we I know 
we, we picked the numbers up and we got some really good officers of color on the job and they do great work. They're fantastic cops, fantastic cops. And I can remember very well all the guys that I know in Providence that are now, well, I knew them when they were patrolmen or detectives. Uh, now they're all in captains and lieutenants uh, that are people of color. Great guys too, and great cops. So, uh, you know, uh, police recruiting is tough. When you end up in, the, in this kind of situation, just like we did four years ago, when there was this spate of bad shootings on unarmed uh, people of color, that hurts your recruiting. Because when you try to go in and talk to people of color about wanting to be a cop, that's not well received. So I guess we're going to have to say that the jury is out and every police chief in the country has got his work cut out for him. Yeah. I had wanted to, I don't know if this is something you want to weigh in on, but there have been calls for reform to the law enforcement officers. Bill of Rights, do you have any... Uh... Well, that's a good, good question. And uh, I've been saying this for years. I've talked to the union now. I am probably one of the older cops that we, I'll, I'll give you a little history here. 19, I came on the job in 73. The Bill of Rights came in, I think, in either 75 or 76. <clears throat> Before that, if you were a policeman, uh, if you got on the wrong side of your boss uh, for something that might be relatively minor, you could lose your job for the Bill of Rights. So I think there for a while it was probably needed to give some balance to the whole thing because bosses back in those days were not necessarily the nicest people in the world. Yeah. They were very uh, heavy-handed. Uh, they weren't much for sitting down and talking to you about things. Uh, so I, I would have to say that uh, it was probably needed at that time. But over the years, the unions being so powerful in the state of Rhode Island, uh, particularly, well, you've got the IVPO and you got the FOP. The IVPO is probably more pushy on this than the FOP, but they managed to get some things in there that, in my opinion, uh, probably have taken away some of the balance that was needed in this Bill of Rights, and I think what's happened now is that uh, there is a perception out there on the part of some people that you can't get rid of bad cops because, you know, the Bill of Rights. Uh, I mean, for example, I'll, I'll give you a quick analogy. The police chief in Minneapolis fired these guys within 24 hours. You can't do that in the state of Rhode Island. Yeah. Police chief can't fire. We would have to go through the bureaucratic steps. And you have to be very careful because if you're out of step, one step, you may lose your case. They'll bring that up and use it against you. So I know in my discussions over the years, uh, and I'm very friendly with uh, C.T. Quinn, who used used to be the, I think he, I think Ziggy is still the president of the state FOP. I told state, I said, Ziggy, guys got to be careful, okay? There's going to come a day 
where something bad is going to happen. And I will guarantee you that there's going to be a hue and cry and all your friends up there at the state house may not be able to be your friends anymore. And you're going to find that your Bill of Rights is going to get taken away. Okay, I'm just telling you, okay? Because, you know, every day you go to work, you never know what's going to happen out there. And if something is bad, okay, and, you know, God forbid, I mean, you look what happened to Cornell Young's son. I mean, that was the last real big one that I could think of that really stirred up the emotions. I mean, it was a grand jury. I mean, it was, oh my God, there was all kinds of uh, stuff that went on over that situation. I mean, it, it was very unfortunate. Uh, and the province police department just got, they were torn up emotionally on every side of that that you can imagine. But that's all you need. And do I think that it's the potential is there right now? Yeah, possibly. And I, I mean, I've been, I was involved, let's see, back when I was the president of the police chiefs in 2008, and I was on the executive board from five to 10, uh, we were very involved with racial profiling. And there was nothing that I could think of during that five years that was that, and then my presidential year, which was 08, uh, we had immigration. That was a big issue. Uh, but those two issues caused all kinds of rancor uh, in the meetings that we have with the police chiefs. You know, very, very difficult. And, and uh, I, I found myself, let's see, three years in a row, I had to go up and testify both Senate Judiciary and <coughs> House Judiciary. I, I would try to take the tack that for two years I supported the racial profiling bills. And then I just got to the point where I said, look, we need a break from this. We need to regroup a little because they kept wanting to push, 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 push. And the executive board said, yeah, look, we, we're not having enough time to react to this thing. Okay, because they, every year, you know, it comes up and I said, well, I said, not only that, but I, I, you know, having looked at the way the methodology that is used for some of these traffic studies, uh, I don't know how we can win. You know, if, you, if you're going to come up with an idyllic notion that you're only going to stop uh, people of color consistent with their numbers in the population, uh, that to me is a little bit of a fairy tale. Because you don't know. I mean, you're supposed to be operating on probable cause, reasonable suspicion. Reasonable suspicion when you stop a car, probable cause to take any further actions once you get up to the car. So if you're going to condemn us because you think our numbers are disparate, well, that uh, that's kind of a mixed, it's a little bit of a mixed bag because yeah, you're saying it's dis disparate in the population, but you haven't bought in people from outside the state who come down, to they come into Rhode Island a lot. We get a lot of people here that come down here to use the airport. And how that all gets factored in. And uh, I, 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 
I've had some serious conversations with the people from Northeastern that were handling our studies that I, I just didn't think it was fair. Mm -hmm. And I said, you guys really need to take a look at it because <clears throat> basically during the years that we had it, four out of five people that were being stopped overall were still white people. But they were taking a look at that one-fifth and trying to say that, oh, this is disparate because of the number, you know, well, how do you know how many people, how many people of color we really have in the city of Warwick if you're looking at the residential people? And then how can you tell me on any given day how many people we actually came into the city of Warwick that are people of color? This is very subjective. And yet, you're putting us in a situation where public, from a public relations view, this is a knife in our back because we're constantly, you're constantly putting up there the province journal. Oh, and, and they had to, I didn't even want to mention his name, but the guy that uh, they put on it uh, was already had an agenda. And he would come down, and each time that the study would come out, uh, he would go around to the individual police chiefs, and the first thing he would say is that nothing is on the record. Now, what do you have to say with your numbers? Your numbers are terrible. You know, he would throw the needle at you and you know, it was just terrible. And then, of course, he'd write that the article to me was just as bad. It was, it was terrible. All, all of this because of the one-fifth that he was taking, and he was taking it according right. to the way he saw it. And, of course, the minorities would take that, and they'd go ballistic. And then, of course, you're racist, you're this, you're that. And we'd sit down at these meetings, and these meetings were like, they were terrible, just awful. Yelling at one another? What would you? Well, you'd sit there and you'd, you you wouldn't want you wouldn't want to get into an argument with them, but they would they would get some of the people would get real nasty with you, and you'd have to really sit there and hold your temper, and just listen and try to excuse me. Can we bring this back and sit down and try to see the point that we're trying to make here? Oh, you're just you're just covering it up. That's all you're doing. No, I'm not covering it up. I'm trying to explain to you my point. Will you please respect my point of view? I'm respecting your point of view. I, I haven't, I didn't interrupt you. It, it would get that bad. It really would, some of the leaders on the other side. And, uh, you know, it was, it was very, it was that, that, those issues are always prickly issues, the civil rights issues. Always difficult. It, you gotta work very, very hard when you're dealing with the civil rights issue. It's, it's, it's a real challenging issue for police chiefs. And, and on the other hand, you have to understand the history. Okay, I mean, some of that I could, some of the people I could understand. Now, so, some of the people were very reasonable, and some of the people that, I thought some of the people that really had the knowledgeable people were people you could sit down and talk to. And they were very good. But then you had other people that were, you know, they wanted to go at you you know, with guns blazing, right. and uh, it, it made some of the some of the, some of the meetings very very difficult. But to uh, that's kind of a wrap up, I guess. To address, you know, the, there's clearly yeah. this distrust. There's this this I, this, this. I am sure that, that uh, I am sure that as things hopefully will simmer down to the point where uh, that there'll be meetings. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wouldn't be able to
wouldn't surprise me. I mean, see, we have an executive director now. Uh, retired police chief is our executive director. Does a great job. And uh, I'm sure that Sid has probably already been put on notice that uh, there's going to be meetings that are coming up. And I, I'm sure that there'll be legislation that, that will be put out. Uh, you know, you've, you've got the progressive wing, you know, that are on the left. I'm sure they'll be pushing for uh, a lot of legislation. We'll just have to wait and see how that goes. And hopefully you can sit down and be reasonable if you can, you know, bend as long as it's not going to completely, you know, take the job that where, where you can't do it anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, but uh, I hope it doesn't come to, I hope it doesn't get to the point like it seems like it's got in Minneapolis where they want to defund the police department. Yeah. I mean, that to me is just, that's over the pale. Yeah. I think. I mean, I think that people are, are not thinking clearly when they say things like that. I mean, if you supposedly the police chief they have there, they bought in because he was a reformer. I mean, okay, you're, you're, you want to you want to put the gun to his head because he had four people that probably acted well outside of policy. He did everything he could. He fired him. The rest of it's up to the criminal investigation. So. I hope that once people settle us down and maybe the emotion of what's happened here. Uh, now the other thing that's happening is that with all these protests and everything going on, there's the chiefs are dealing with a lot of complaints about the police being heavy handed at some of these demonstrations. Now you're gonna to have to sort that all out and figure, well, okay, was that when was that during a riot situation? Are we actually talking about a peaceful demonstrator that was supposedly dealt with in a heavy-handed manner by police? I, I mean, I don't know, you, you know, but you're seeing these come across. Just before I came and left here, CNN had it on, and they were talking about all these departments. Some San Jose was dealing with 1,200 complaints uh, over the last four days, but it didn't go into well, were, were there riots or were they dealing with, we're talking about people, your police being heavy-handed uh, at the peaceful demonstration. So, I, you gotta sort that, and hopefully you can sort it out without it not, you know, just, and like I said, uh, the politics is always very difficult and uh, we'll have to wait and see how that all fleshes out too. I suspect that there'll be like I said, I suspect there'll be a lot of legislation that will be proposed and will probably be sent to the committees. And we'll have to see how that, uh, I suppose I, I've been keeping appraised of the police chief's meetings because as a retired member, I can still listen in. I listened, in fact, we had, they had a meeting two weeks ago, so it was uh, a virtual meeting, like most everything has been virtual anyway, so. But, but it seems like everybody's getting involved. I mean, the athletes are getting involved. Colin Kaepernick is coming up again. You know, it's, I mean, everybody is arguing. Drew Brees got in the middle of this thing, was saying something that he's offended his fellow, uh, you know, teammates that are, that are African-American. So, you know, this thing takes a lot of different, even on CNBC, all the CEOs are, up there pontificating, well, we need to 
put more resources into our minority outreach and we need to work on this income inequality problem. Well, yeah, you guys would be a big help. You got a lot of lot of money to play with here. Yeah, that would help a little bit because they're they're after you too, you know. So. Is there is there anything you're seeing departments locally and, and even elsewhere doing or that you think they could be doing? It's like a you know a first step or a you know. Well, you know I. I, 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 I mean I I mean I'm, I I don't know if I could be guilty of a little bias here, but I mean, I've known Hugh Clements for, I put him through the police academy back in 1985. I mean, Huey was just a tremendous policeman and he's been doing a fantastic job as police chief. And everything I've heard that, you know, he's very big on outreach with the minority community. Steve Parry, I've known Steve for many, many years. He's a good friend of mine. Uh, we've done a lot of things jointly when he was going back to when he was the uh, superintendent of the state police. Uh, Steve is a, he's got a very difficult job there because he's, he's dealing with a lot of different things, but I know Steve is very much of a good communicator. That having been said, uh, I've seen some things that have happened in that city uh, that uh, the council is... I don't know. I, I just don't know what's going to happen with them. I, I think that's the linchpin right there is Providence. Watch and see what happens at Providence. Uh, I heard that there's one councilwoman over the last three or four days that wants to start the defunding routine. And then you got somebody else that uh, wants to resurrect the issue of reparations for slavery. So, I mean, there, who, who, knows, who knows how many issues are going to, how many issues are going to be put on the plate here. Now that might be more of a national issue, but uh, particularly if the Democrats get in, there's certainly, there's certainly going to be an issue of discussion, that's for sure. So I, I've heard that come up in a couple of venues here over the last week. So uh, I, I think anything is fair game right now. And uh, like I said, the police are going to have to, going to have to listen. I mean, you got to start by listening, that's for sure, and understand the pain and, you know, uh, particularly when you're dealing with the responsible leaders out there in your community, and hopefully you've, you've had a good dialogue with them so that, you know, when they call, sure, come on in, you want to talk to me about something, sure, you know, and they can trust you, you know, it's all about trust, too. So, this is one of those things, uh, sit back and watch and see what happens. We are back. Thank you again to Colonel McCartney for uh, making the time for us today. Um, so as usual, let's wrap up with a, uh, a quick uh, pop culture roundup, uh, or I guess more more uh, accurately put, an entertainment recommendation from uh, Jake and I. I know the weather continues to improve and get nicer. The days are longer, so there is less reason to be stuck inside, uh, especially as uh, restrictions lift. But uh, Jake, what has been on your watch list, reading list, listen list, et cetera, this week. Ooh, big for me, Dan. Yesterday, a uh, surprise early release of Run the Jewels' fourth album, simply called RTJ4. 
Mm. Uh, it's not that long. It's probably got her f- just under 40 minutes long. I think it's about 11 songs. The last song is about six and a half minutes, but the other ones are pretty quick. It is uh, tour de force as usual. I love Run the Jewels. I think that I think they've never really put out a bad album personally. Mm. Uh, I've always been a fan of them. They're great. Killer Mike, especially. I mean, it's just it's a great duo, and it it's just a propulsive rap album. I love it. I, I, there really isn't much else to to say about it other than. There is no wasted song on there. It's an easy listen, really quick. Doesn't even feel like 40 minutes, feels like 20. And you find yourself going back again and again and again. It gets you pumped up too. So I really, really recommend if you have any if you have any interest in Run the Jewels or or a rap fan at all, you, you need to not run, uh, no pun intended, run, not walk to go listen to it. I, hey. uh, I will have to check that out. I, I uh, did enjoy there earlier work um in a similar vein i'll plug uh, if you're into some looking for some left field hip-hop there's this group called shabazz palaces that uh i really really love and uh was fortunate enough to see at the columbus theater in providence a couple years ago uh they i, I had somehow missed it a couple weeks ago put out a new album and uh giving it a spin it is uh it is quite good it's uh you know it is a little out there a little left field but uh that's my uh, give that music recommendation, and in keeping with recent events, I, it caught me, and uh, I'm excited to give it a look. I saw the Criterion Channel, um, which collects uh, obviously you know movies that uh, often go more towards the art house sensibility or you know really great films, uh, is making some of their collection by black filmmakers available uh, in front of their paywall. Um, so I I'll, I had not uh, yet gotten on the Criterion collection, but I think I'll have to. Uh, uh, give that channel a look just to uh, to check out some of the films that they're showing. So I'd plug that out there to uh, to movie buffs as well um, this week. Yeah, for with sure. That, uh, I've, yeah. I've seen that they've been doing that with a lot of stuff. I think Selma they're making available for free rental. So it's definitely something to hop on if you, you get the chance. Mm. Definitely. Well, with, with that, uh, for the usual roundup, check us out online at warwickonline.com, cranstononline.com. JohnstonSunrise.net, Beacon of Beacon Communications, of course, the publisher of the Warwick Beacon, Cranston Herald, Johnston Sunrise, and Commentary Reminder. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at K. Follow Jake on Twitter at Jacob underscore Morocco. Follow our sports editor, Alex Sponsler, at Aspon27. And check out our main Twitter feed at RodyBeat. Uh, check us out on Facebook, on Instagram. We continue to post uh, regular updates regarding the COVID-19 data and headlines from the state level. Um, I should note, uh, I'm pretty excited about this. Next week, the governor is moving to a three-day-a-week briefing schedule rather than uh, at the height of the crisis, she was doing every day, seven days a week. She moved to five a few weeks ago, and now it is uh, going to three. So Monday, Wednesday, Friday, for those out there listening, uh, those are the days at 1 p.m. where the governor will be addressing the crisis. But uh It'll give us. Uh, I feel like I'm getting getting a couple hours, a few hours of my life back every week now because I've been, aside from today, I've been following them pretty regularly. Um, what else? Uh, again, keep your eyes out for our graduation coverage and special sections coming up. Uh, kudos as always to my friend John Schmettinghoff for the music at the top of the episode. We are hosted by Anchor Podcasts, and you can subscribe today. Uh, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, and numerous other platforms. And uh, please do and check out our back uh, catalog. I had a special plug this week. 
for anyone who may have missed it a few weeks ago, or I guess a couple months ago at this point, we were fortunate to have Will Gagan, former Beacon uh, Communications sports editor, now sports editor of The Independent, on to discuss his first book. Uh, he is a huge baseball fan and had an opportunity to cover collegiate summer league baseball uh, or to travel the country to various leagues. And it's his experiences are, uh, are uh, uh, laid out in his book, Summer Baseball Nation. Uh, we had a story in this week, Jake, that you did a very nice job on Thank you. Uh, about Will and his books. So if you haven't read his book or heard the pod, check it out. Will is a great guy and one of the best in the business here in Rhode Island. So um, with that, Jake, thank you as always. Have a great weekend. To our listeners and readers, thank you, and we will be back with you next week.